Traveling to the Sun with Ulysses, this week on Planetary Radio. Hi everyone, welcome to Public Radio's travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society. For 18 years, it has circled the sun following a lonely path. Now the Ulysses spacecraft is nearing its end. We'll look back with Nigel Angold, Mission Operations Manager for the European Space Agency. Emily Lakdawalla will answer another of your questions in this week's installment of Q&A, and she'll get the job done in barely more than 100 Martian seconds, while Bruce Betts will help you pick a new name for a Saturn, a Saturn car, that is, belonging to a listener. That will be right after we take a look at the current night sky. Bill Nye, the science and planetary guy, is on vacation this week. We come to you as the American Democratic and Republican parties are finally making their choices of presidential candidates official. But how do John McCain and Barack Obama feel about space exploration and development? Fortunately, both have just issued space policy position papers. You can read them at planetary.org. And I hope you know that planetary.org is the place to find what I firmly believe is the best collection point for all news planetary. Emily's space blog has put up links to some of Don Dixon's newest space art. You may remember that ace artist Dixon was a guest on this show a while back. Emily also provides her critique of Twitter in space, or should I say, Twitter in space. Turns out the Phoenix Lander isn't the only probe using the ultra-brief online tool to provide mission updates. Ulysses was one of the first space exploration missions to depend on an international partnership. The solar power orbiter was only supposed to last five years. Now, at 18, failing power is likely to spell the end of the spacecraft that showed us the north and south poles of the sun for the first time. Nigel Angold has been working on the Ulysses mission for every one of those 18 years. Though he works for the European Space Agency, his office all of that time has been at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab near Pasadena, California. That's where I found him a few days ago. Nigel, first of all, thank you for joining us on Planetary Radio, and congratulations as a representative of the Ulysses mission, which is uh, going on 18 years of uh, observing the solar environment. Yes, thank you very much. Officially, uh, we were supposed to end the mission July 1st this year um, because we were expecting the hydrazine fuel on board the spacecraft to freeze. However, we've managed to keep it from freezing up until now, and... uh, We are continuing to take scientific data on a daily basis. So we are still going, although we are not sure how much longer we can can, uh, continue. So the rumors of your death were greatly exaggerated, obviously. Absolutely. And yet I was getting those releases. Apparently you guys were as surprised as anyone? Well, yes, I suppose we were surprised. But um, one of the problems we have on the spacecraft is that we don't actually have very good temperature monitoring of certain areas of the spacecraft. And where we are expecting the fuel to freeze uh, is one of those areas where we don't have good monitoring. So Hmm. although we can model the thermal environment on board the spacecraft, we don't have absolute measurements where we really need them the most. So difference of a few months um, is quite usual for a particular event to occur. And in actual fact, we haven't ever had any good hard data for freezing hydrazine because for 18 years we've been trying to avoid freezing it (laughs) and we've managed to do that successfully. (laughs) What is the outlook? I guess it's hard to say without that additional data. Well the outlook isn't particularly rosy because in order to keep the hydrazine from freezing we are actually flowing fuel through the pipes 
every two hours we, we move shift fuel um, through a cold spot uh, just a few centimeters at a time but uh, that uses up about a half a kilogram of fuel every month so within a few months we will if we don't freeze we will actually run out of fuel anyway so mm-hmm. not very many more months to go you've been with us from the beginning in fact, you've been here at JPL as a representative of, of ESA. Did you have even the slightest inkling, I bet you've been asked this a million times, that you'd still be here 18 years later with a spacecraft that's alive and kicking? Absolutely not. I mean, the mission was designed to last for five years, basically. We managed to do that very successfully. And then bit by bit, we've been extending the mission um, a few years at a time. And now it's 18 years, and it seems remarkable that we've come this far. As we have found at Mars, as Cassini is finding in the Saturnian system, there are huge advantages in terms of science if you can keep a spacecraft out there for a long time. That certainly seems true with Ulysses. That's absolutely true for Ulysses. Uh, The beauty of uh, a mission like Ulysses is it's, it's making unique measurements because it's flying over the poles of the sun. It's the only spacecraft to do that and uh, there are no um, plans for another one to do it Hmm. so it's taking a unique perspective of the sun because we have extended for 18 years we've managed to go through one 11 year solar cycle uh, and seen a a, a reversal of the magnetic fields of the sun uh, which which reverses every 11 years so that's a 22 year cycle so we've we've got about three quarters of of that so-called hail cycle recorded why do we go over the poles of the sun And uh, an analogy is that if you were limited to exploration of the Earth uh, around its equator, you would Mm. never be able to see what was over the poles. You would think everything was covered in in rainforest or whatever, but you wouldn't ever predict uh, the polar ice caps. It's the old blind man and the elephant uh, story. I don't know if that's a big story where you grew up, but here, uh, if you just feel one piece of the elephant, you don't know what's going on at the other end. Exactly. So... The idea was, I mean, because every every other measurement was made in the essentially in the ecliptic plane where the, all the, the planets are and where where all the other s- satellites uh, are located, going over the poles of the sun would give us a different perspective. So we have three orbits of that, and so we are measuring at each latitude three times as opposed to once, and and each time at a slightly different um, condition of the sun. And in fact, you were able to get through solar minimum and take it all the way to solar maximum. I guess that was even lent its name, the solar maximum mission, to the continuation of the Ulysses uh, mission? That's right, yes. Um, Prior to Ulysses, measurement of the solar wind was, as I said, based upon uh, observations in ecliptic. And typically you would see a solar wind of around 400 kilometers per second, which is actually the slow solar wind. When you Mm. get up to higher latitudes, it's around 750 kilometers uh, per second and these uh, originate from the coronal holes the high solar winds were thought to be unusual and as it turns out it's the slow solar wind which is the unusual for the most part of the solar cycle it's the high solar wind which is around for most of the time we're not here really to talk science because you're more on the engineering side but i do want to at least mention about the magnetic field ulysses also made some tremendous revelations about how that magnetic field is structured and its relationship to the solar wind. Yes, essentially, I mean, there are the two um, 
observations made. Firstly, I mean, the uh, field reversal is, is kind of like just a, a dipole rotating, yeah. a, a bar magnet, if you like, rotating. So at one point, the, the North Pole is, is, is facing upwards, and then it flips so as it's facing downwards. So it acted acts very much like a dipole. But in, in other respects, the magnetic field of the sun is more comp- complex than was uh, originally uh, thought. So this will lead to new models of sun's magnetic field and, and hence uh, the whole of uh, the dynamics of the heliosphere. Mm. Back to the longevity of this spacecraft. Space is a nasty, nasty place. How do you design a machine like this, over-design it, in fact, I think you called it uh, Ulysses an engineering overachiever. Still, to be able to put up with those kinds of conditions for that long seems quite an achievement. It's true. One of the things in our favor, I think, was the fact that in order to get out of the ecliptic plane and, and to get into this unique orbit over the poles of the sun, we had to have a large amount of energy to change its orbit. We launched on board the shuttle, which got us into low Earth orbit, and then we had two very large booster motors but even then that's not enough to get us out of the ecliptic plane so uh, these booster motors took us out to Jupiter and then we flew past Jupiter uh, and used its gravitational field to sling us out of the ecliptic plane so it kind of tilted our orbit by almost 90 degrees Mm. by flying past this huge planet but because we flew past a a very big planet such as Jupiter which has a very harsh radiation environment Mm -hmm. the spacecraft had to be designed to cope with that so you have to have radiation hardened components and that has uh, meant that uh, it's been a very robust spacecraft on the other hand given that we are dealing with uh, a spacecraft that was designed in the late 1970s and early 1980s it's not terribly complex and therefore in some respects uh, it's not particularly adaptable to various different situations we can't change lots of software on board the spacecraft the way you can with modern spacecraft. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's very robust. There's not so much to go wrong, if you like. Uh, simple is good in, in many respects for spacecraft, and it, it's obviously done well for Ulysses. We'll hear more from Ulysses Mission Operations Manager Nigel Angold in one minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, hey, Bill Nye, the science guy here. I hope you're enjoying Planetary Radio. We put a lot of work into this show and all our other great Planetary Society projects. I've been a member since the disco era. Now I'm the Society's Vice President. And you may well ask, why do we go to all this trouble? Simple. We believe in the PB&J, the passion, beauty, and joy of space exploration. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening. Of course, you can do more than just listen. You can become part of the action, helping us fly solar sails, discover new planets, and search for extraterrestrial intelligence and life elsewhere in the universe. Here's how to find out more. You can learn more about the Planetary Society at our website, planetary.org slash radio or by calling 1-800-9-WORLDS. Planetary Radio listeners who aren't yet members can join and receive a Planetary Radio t-shirt. Members receive the internationally acclaimed Planetary Report magazine. That's planetary.org slash radio. The Planetary Society, exploring new worlds. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. After visiting Jupiter, the Ulysses mission has been circling our sun pole to pole, and Mission Operations Manager Nigel Angold has been watching over it. After 18 years, the spacecraft is finally running down. In a sense, you're up against a wall. There's nothing you can do about the decay of that little piece of plutonium in the radioisotope thermal generator. But otherwise, mechanically, 
is this spacecraft still in pretty good shape? The spacecraft mechanically is in excellent shape. The only problem we've had mechanically with the spacecraft is uh, the uh, the nutation anomaly, which we got when we first deployed an axial boom, uh, which was part of one of the instrument uh, experiments. It was an antenna. Mm-hmm. This antenna is illuminated by the, the sun, and as the spacecraft rotates, it flexes. It's kind of like a bimetallic strip, if you like. Mm. And, and because it flexed, it transmitted motion into into the spacecraft body itself, and that caused the wobble or nutation. Now, this was a problem because we have a high-gain antenna on board the spacecraft because mm. the um, transmitter on board the spacecraft is not very large, not very many watts, and therefore you need a big antenna in order to get data back from the spacecraft to Earth. And this antenna has to be a big, parab- it's a big parabolic dish. It has to be pointed very accurately at the Earth. And if the spacecraft wobbles then the pointing of that antenna is compromised and you lose your data. That's really the only issue we've had. Fortunately, we found some techniques which we could use to damp the mutation by firing thrusters on board the spacecraft in an unusual way. Mm. This uh, phenomenon occurs once, once in orbit as we come into perihelion as we get closer to the sun, and it lasts for about a year. So we've had three periods where we've had this problem to overcome. Hmm. And we've managed to uh, keep the this wobble down to low levels so that we've managed to have essentially a complete data set, a continuous data set from beginning of the mission until now. Hmm. I want to turn to your experience. You are an employee of ESA, the European Space Agency, and yet you have spent 18 years here in the wilds of uh, Pasadena, or actually La Cañada, Flint Ridge, where JPL is really located, that just strikes me as such an interesting cultural experience. Can't have always been uh, fun to be so far from home. I'm not so sure about that. I think it's always, <laughs> it's always been quite a lot of fun here. In the early days, uh, there were a number of cultural if issues uh, to to resolve, and not so much actually living here, but working here. Different ways of working between both ESA and uh, NASA or JPL. Uh, some co- very clear cultural differences, which uh, over time we've we've worked through, and we now have an extremely nicely integrated team. Mm. But in the early days, there was not necessarily friction, but the way things were done from from the JPL side didn't quite mesh with the way things were done from the ESA side. But um, from the point of view point of view of living in Southern California, well. It, I wouldn't say it's too much of a hardship. I think there are wor- worse places in the world to work and, and live. So I'm not I'm not going to make it out like I'm I'm uh, in any any real hardship here. No argument for me. I'm a native. This really was, though, I think, a pioneering mission in many ways. One of them being that it was the result of this international collaboration, which nowadays is almost par for the course. Instruments from various. Uh, Various nations and agencies ending up on one spacecraft. But that also seems to have been a, sort of a pathfinding role for Ulysses. Do you get that sense? Yes, it's true. Um, we, I think we were one of the early missions to be involved with international collaboration on, on such a large scale. Um, t- to some degree forced upon us by the fact that originally the program was two spacecraft and one of the spacecraft was cancelled and, and one was meant to be a U.S. spacecraft and one was meant to be a European spacecraft. That all got combined into one. So hmm. we have an odd mix of, uh, 
operations where the spacecraft is provided by Europe for the most part, but the radioisotope thermal thermoelectric generator was provided by the U.S., Space Shuttle Discovery, which is obviously provided by the U.S., uh, tracking provided by the Deep Space Network, mm. and, and um, operations done by a European team located at JPL. Mm. It's a very strange mix, but uh, yes, uh, we, were, we were pioneers in that regard. And also, um, it's been made a lot easier, I think, by the fact that we uh, have grown up into the age of the Internet. Certainly, I think we were one of the first uh, missions which actually used email as opposed to faxes uh, as its primary interface with its scientific community. We, we weren't origin originally using the Internet, but eventually, uh, obviously, our, our interface with our community became through the Internet as opposed to uh, trying to find files on a server somewhere. Mm. Uh, it has evolved. International collaboration has become a lot easier from a logistical point of view. Uh, politically, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, but uh, I'm not going to get into that too much. Yeah, that's not but one you can engineer away, unfortunately. Not, not true, but I, but I would have to say that on a, on a working level, uh, I'm, I've been very lucky to have been in an international environment all my working life. Hmm. Uh, that's a privilege. Are you uh, headed home once uh, that hydrazine uh, freezes up and we've heard from Ulysses for the last time? That's an interesting question. I, the only answer I have is another question, and that's for me, where is home? Mm -hmm. I don't know that yet. Uh, and I, will, I will figure that out in the next few months. Well, I hope it's not a decision you have to make for a very long time uh, and that Ulysses continues to do what it has done for nearly 18 years, and that is uh, provide uh, really groundbreaking science data back to uh, all of us here on Earth about uh, the sun. Thanks so much again for joining us on Planetary Radio. Thank you very much. It's been my, been my pleasure. Nigel Angold is and has been over the entire course of the Ulysses mission, the mission operator. Well, were you mission operations manager from the start? No, no. No? How did you start out? I was the spacecraft operations manager. Ah, well, now he's the mission operations manager, still working for the European Space Agency, but based here at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory outside of Pasadena. We will be back with this week's edition of What's Up? and our friend Bruce Betts after a visit from Emily with this week's Q&A. Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, If a Martian Sol is 40 minutes longer than an Earth day, yet they still use a 24-hour clock, how long are Martian seconds? When do they use the Mars clock and when do they use the Earth clock? Most space missions operate using Earth time based on universal time. Spacecraft computers are equipped with clocks that count up the seconds of mission elapsed time, and all spacecraft operations are conducted according to this internal clock using Earth seconds. The steady ticking of the spacecraft's own clock prevents confusion about when events are planned, particularly when most missions operate so far from Earth that there is a lag of minutes or even hours between the time that signals are sent from Earth and when they are received by a spacecraft. In addition to spacecraft time, landed Mars missions also have to keep track of local solar time. The local rising and setting of the sun influences power availability, causes changes in lighting for images, and is related to daily weather changes, all of which are important. So mission planners keep track of local solar time using the 24-hour clock that they are familiar with. 
This works well for Mars, whose days, minutes, hours, and seconds are only about 3% longer than Earth ones. The mission's plans are organized according to this local solar time, but before commands are sent to Mars, they are converted to spacecraft clock time. So for the most part, the rovers and Phoenix don't know what their local time is, except in one instance. Opportunity keeps track of the number of clock ticks since local midnight in order to wake up from its deep sleep power conservation mode. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Bruce Betts, the director of projects, is here, ready to tell us about the night sky and come up with the name for Kirby Runyon's car. We... (laughs) (laughs) We have all the candidates, not a whole bunch. There weren't a lot, but their choice, their choice, their choice, as uh, Spencer Tracy said in Woman of the Year. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. It's good to see you. It's lovely to see you, Matt. Night sky, Jupiter, dominating the evening. Check it out. uh, Rising, it's up uh, in the east in the early evening. South uh, by middle of the evening. Check it out, ideally, with a telescope. Look for those little dots that represent the Galilean satellites, the big moons of Jupiter. Uh, Even with uh, steady binoculars, you can see that. That's that's the big thing to look at. We went from where I just was reading off 6,000 things to, to do to where things are a little thin. So check out some of those constellations. Also, let me remind people... I can't tell you when you can see a satellite going by, an Earth spacecraft satellite, because we're, we've got listeners all over the world, and it's rather specific. But you can check it out on websites, including www.heavens-above.com. And uh, look for things like the International Space Station, Hubble Space Telescope, looking like bright lights passing over in the night sky. And you can predict exactly where they'll be when. On to Random Space Fact! Okay, it'll do. You're tired. (laughs) I am all tired, I'm sorry. Did you want me to try again or just train for next week? You can do it quickly, yeah. I mean, just really... Yeah, just train. Just start working out again. Come on. All right, I will. Just the, these Olympics, ironically, have been tiring me out watching them. So I haven't had to, done my usual 30 minutes a day training saying random space fact. All right, well, it's time to get back on the bike. All right. Random space fact, Mars. The Phoenix mission, I was just talking, including with my kids, about the mythical Phoenix, which, of course, bursts into flames. I can guarantee you the Phoenix spacecraft will not be able to burst into flames <laughs> on the Martian surface. And that is because... Mars has no oxygen, no, to be more accurate, it has no molecular oxygen. Uh, And so now it's possible that Phoenix, like some rocket repellents, (laughs) repellents, got to keep those (laughs) rockets away. Rocket propellants includes an oxidizer within the bird itself, but I don't, the spacecraft does not. So minus the oxygen in the atmosphere, the free, you know, oxygen molecules, no bursting in flames. Most of the Martian atmospheres, of course, Carbon dioxide, which has lots of oxygen atoms, but totally not helpful for making fire, which is why it's used in fire extinguishers. I wonder if that Journal of Irreproducible uh, Results is still out there, because that would be a great piece for them, wouldn't it? You know, a hypothesis <laughs> on how the phoenix, the chemical structure of the phoenix bird. Oh, that would be. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be nerddom at its best. Mark that one down. Okay. All right. All right. Just a second. <laughs> okay. 
marked it down onto the trivia contest. He didn't really. <laughs> Gosh, I can't get away with anything with you. <laughs> On to the trivia contest, and of, of course, last time we asked you to name a car. <laughs> As Not we, just any car. As we have never done. Indeed, listener Kirby Runyon uh, has bought a Saturn brand car and wants to name his car after one of the moons of Saturn. So we did one of our occasional creativity contests, inviting people to s- submit names. Not only names of the moons, but also reasons why it should be named that. Take it away, Matt. Here's one from uh, Thomas Janukta. In uh, Poland, Warsaw, Poland. And this is one I don't think you'd heard of. I certainly had not. Kiviuk, very elegant orbit, 11,111,000, in other words, 11,111,000 kilometers. Interesting Inuit name, easy to pronounce. Kiviuk. Apparently, it's not easy to pronounce. No, no, not for me. (laughs) It's not for you. Not for yours truly. I'll go with something a a little shorter here. Steve. Witty, a regular listener from Michigan, suggests Iapetus because not all decisions are black and white. <laughs> but he says his Saturn is white with black interior. And, of course, Iapetus being the high contrast object in the solar system, one side white, one side black. Yeah. And Tom Hendricks also put uh, Iapetus in. He said because especially if the car is two-toned and way out there, he says. I've got a couple more. i got Enceladus. Okay. And uh, because uh, it would be the, the water-powered comes standard with really cool tiger stripes, and it's plume wonderful. That Plume wonderful. I love that. It's plume wonderful. That from uh, Rick Qualls, Texas. I got one more, and it's from uh, Lindsay Dawson, our friend from Down Under who sends us candy. Well, this time he sent us a poem. Here it is. Ain't no why when a car is named, cars they are just all the same. Saturn's moon, for Saturn's name, is only certain to inflame. This is what its name will be, one from Norse mythology. Hiroken, wolf-riding hag of winter storms. With this name, your car is born. (laughs) I do enjoy the wolf-riding hag of winter storms. And uh, another Norse uh, god, apparently, from uh, Torsten Zimmer, Ymir, 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 uh, however it's pronounced, translates as gravel yeller. Which gravel is good. Yeller. That's, so it, like that's something a car would do. So he says, you know, you imagine starting it up on a gravel road, creating a crunching yelling sound and heading off into the distance. <laughs> Sounds like a good commercial for Saturn, right? So, so what did Kirby think of all these? Kirby and, and went so through who's all of them. Winner. He gave them very careful consideration, and after doing so, he liked. Iapetus. And he particularly liked uh, Steve Woody's uh, entry, Steve Woody from Michigan. But now Tom Hendricks did come up with the same moon, so I think we may have to give out two posters this week. Well, that's very nice of you. That's fair. I think it's fair. All right. But charge you for the second. But congratulations to all of our entries. They're delightful, and uh, we really appreciate it. And, you know, for those of you who weren't quite up to uh, coming up with a name uh, for uh, Kirby's car, we're going to give you another chance now. No car naming this time. We're going back to uh, solid facts. And in this case, we're going back to a uh, Planetary Society mission from uh, a couple of years ago. Planetary Society tried to fly the first ever solar sail mission, Cosmos 1. Unfortunately, suffered a launch failure. Uh, had nothing to do with spacecraft, had to do with the rocket. But tell me about Cosmos 1. How many blades did that solar sail have? So if they had been able to deploy it. How many blades would the solar sail have had? Go to planetary.org slash radio. Find out how to get your entry to us. 
and uh, and try to win another glorious Explorer's Guide to Mars poster. And get that entry to us by 2 p.m. on Monday, September 1st. 2 p.m. Monday, September 1. We're done. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about turtles with socks on. <laughs> Is this something you were just doing with the boys? That was an input from the boys. I solicited what people should think about, and... and uh... That's what they came up with, turtles with socks on. I, I think it's a good thing to think about when you look up the night sky. Thank you and good night. Oh, thank wait, you. that's your good night. But, uh, thank you and good night. He's Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, crawling our way with socks on for another edition of What's Up. They're so quiet when they walk. Next time, a great new guide to the night skies for amateur astronomers. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Have a great week.